Some other things to pay attention to here. There's always uh, lots going on in the life of our church. Uh, But for now, I'm going to ask you to make your way to the book of John, the Gospel of John in your Bible. And if you are using uh, one of those black hardcover Bibles that are under your seat, which I did not mention before. So there are black hardcover Bibles uh, under those same seats where those cards are. Uh, And you are welcome to use those today. Uh, If you don't own a Bible or you know someone who doesn't, uh, you're also welcome to take that with you as our gift today. We'd love for you to, to have that. If you do choose to use one of those Bibles, you will find today's text on page 906. We're in John chapter 20, uh, verses 19 through 23. Uh, many of you were here uh, last week for one of our, our two Easter services. Uh, it was a really, um, a really fulfilling, uh, joy-filled day for me personally. I was grateful uh, to gather with you um, to worship our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. During April, we started this last week, we're going to consider what life in light of Jesus' resurrection looks like. What does Jesus' resurrection mean for our day-to-day lives as Christians? And so Easter, of course, and we thought about this last week, Easter is primarily uh, the celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. He was dead. He is no longer dead. He is alive forevermore. But what we looked at last week from Romans 6 is that because we, by faith, are united with Jesus, that also Easter is a celebration of our own death and resurrection, that that Jesus' death is our death to sin, and that Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection to newness of life. And so we're going to spend the rest of this month exploring this. What what is life in light of Jesus' resurrection? And today, we're going to consider new authority, that there's a new authority imparted to us in light of Jesus' resurrection. Now, we need the resurrection, to talk about this topic. We need the gospel to talk about this topic because there are few aspects of life on this earth more corrupted, more fractured than that of authority. For many, and and perhaps this includes you, authority may as well be another four-letter word. And your experience of authority has been abusive, whether that's from family members or church figures or whatever that might be. Your experience of authority has has really reeked of death and of decay. And the concept itself, because of that, has become so warped and so broken that you would just rather abandon the idea of authority altogether. But here's the thing. You can't. You can't abandon it altogether because there's only an equally damaging alternative on the other side. There's, There's crippling, abusive authoritarianism. That's one major error that wreaks havoc in our lives. There's also a crippling, paralyzing, abusive, in another kind of way, anti-authoritarianism. And because authority is really woven into the design of God in his creation, there's no avoiding and there's no escaping authority. Instead, there will either be authority that reeks of death and decay and sin, or authority that is redeemed, that truly is resurrected into newness of life in light of Jesus' resurrection. And moreover, and this will primarily be our our focus today, because Jesus is alive, we as his people in the world have been granted a measure of his own authority. We are meant to use our lives to live and to speak and to serve with that authority in the world. And I doubt you would argue with this, there's a deep need and a deep longing in the world for the people of God to really step into that role. For every 
For every authoritarian abuse committed by pastors, committed by churches, committed by Christians, of which there are way too many, and are tragic and are inexcusable, for every one of those, I would submit to you this morning that there are at least as many cowardly abdications of the genuine and the sincere and the necessary kind of authority that Christians are meant to demonstrate. And into that void, into that void, in the stead of Jesus' followers, all kinds of corrupted assertions of authoritarianism and anti-authoritarianism are oppressing and confusing and paralyzing the men and the women and the children of our world. And so this morning we're considering together the idea of new authority, and I'd put it to you this way. Child of God, are you dead or are you alive? Because if you've been hiding out in a locked room too long, if you've been dead and decaying in the shadows for too long, then let today be a call for you to come alive, to step into the genuine authority you have as one who in Christ has died and has been raised to new life. And that's where our text leads us this morning. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead later in the day. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, help us to know your ways. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. And for you and you alone, we wait all day long. We pray this through Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. So three things uh, that we're going to consider in light of today's text. The basis of new authority, the character of new authority, what does that look like? And lastly, the need for new authority. The basis, the character, and the need. So first, the basis of New authority. This uh, text here in the Gospel of John, this is John's version uh, of what is commonly known as the Great Commission, where the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples and he commissions them, he sends them out into the world. If you were to flip back to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, we would see Matthew's version of the same Great Commission. And in Matthew's rendition of this, after Jesus rises from death, it's very clear that there's a new authority that is conferred on him. He says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's not that Jesus had no authority before his resurrection. Throughout his life, uh, throughout his ministry, as he walked around those places and, and those cities, 
with different people throughout Palestine, the Jewish leaders were continually perplexed and astonished by him because he spoke and he lived his life with this kind of authority that no one had ever seen before. But in his humbled state, taking on human flesh to dwell among us, Jesus did not exercise all of the divine authority that he could have. And as Paul says in Philippians, Jesus, once he dwelt among us in the earth, he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He became nothing. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But now in his resurrection, this new authority, this this fullness of authority is conferred on Jesus from God the Father. And that passage in Philippians 2 continues, Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's in this new resurrection authority that Jesus commissions his disciples. That's what it says in Matthew 28. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, go. So before we ever, as the people of God, employ this authority that has been given to us, we have to first step back and consider where has that authority come from? God alone author and sustainer of all things. God alone has inherent authority. All other authority is derived authority. It is granted, it is given, it is conferred on those who don't have authority in and of themselves, but have become conduits, have become ambassadors of God's authority. And the pattern that's laid out here, as Jesus says, is that as God the Father has sent him, so also he sends his followers into the world. So God the Father, in his inherent authority, gives all authority to Jesus, and now Jesus, in his authority, sends out his disciples with a measure of his own authority. It's a scholar and author named uh, Christopher Wright, and he puts it this way. He says, Disciples were authoritatively to replicate and to extend the ministry of Jesus himself. He sent them out. He gave them authority. And with that authority, they were to do as he was doing, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, driving out demons and healing the sick. What the apostles said and did, Jesus was saying and doing through them. John chapter 20 uh, is not the first time that we see Jesus commission and send out his followers. He sent out the 12 earlier in his ministry. After they came back, he sent out the 72. But again, it's the resurrection that gives the authority of Jesus' sent people a weight that is unparalleled in the history of the world. Because it's the resurrection that, that demonstrably, definitively proves that Jesus is not just another itinerant teacher. He's not just some kind of healer or some kind of magician uh, or some kind of religious guru. He's the one who has died and is now alive forevermore. And I want you to consider this this morning if you've never thought of it this way. That the way that you, Christian, the way that you are described in light of Jesus' resurrection is that you have become a kingdom of priests to God who will reign with the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is is now who you are. That is part of your identity in light of Jesus' resurrection. And I love how the book of Revelation lays this out in multiple places. Revelation 1 says, Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Revelation 5 says that Jesus alone is worthy to receive glory and honor and power 
because he has made these, these people from every tongue and tribe and nation a kingdom of priests to our God. And it says there, they shall reign on the earth. And then Revelation 20, near the very end of the entire Bible, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him. That's part of who you are, child of God. You are part of this kingdom of priests who, with the authority of Jesus conferred upon you, powerfully are commissioned, consecrated, and called to be this group of people that connects God to the people and the people to God. You become, in light of Jesus' resurrection, not only redeemed men and women, you become co-regents of the kingdom of God. This is the new authority of Jesus and the new authority of his people because Jesus has died and is now alive forevermore. So that's the basis of new authority. Second, let's talk about the character, the character of new authority. What does this new authority look like in the life of a Christian? John chapter 20 teaches us it is both Jesus-shaped and spirit-filled. Jesus-shaped and spirit-filled. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus isn't only the one doing the commissioning here. He's also the example. The Father's sending of Jesus and Jesus' own life and Jesus' ministry, that becomes the model that we are to follow. So that's what I'm saying when I say that our authority is Jesus-shaped. It looks like what Jesus' life looked like when he lived on the earth. And specifically, that means a few things. First, that means that ours is a submitted authority. It's a submitted authority. If you are sent, then by definition, it means that you are following someone else's marching orders. Not your own opinions, not your own preferences, not your own agenda. This was true for Jesus during his life and ministry on the earth. He was sent by God the Father. He did only what he saw his Father doing. He said only what the Father commanded him to speak. And remarkably, what Jesus says in John chapter 8, he did nothing on his own authority. He only did what the Father told him and taught him to do. Now, if that's Jesus, the one through whom, as we heard in Hebrews 1 this morning, the one through whom the world was created, how much more so is that the case for you and me? Before we get too excited about having some of the authority of Jesus imparted to you, remember this, it will cost you your life. It will cost you your life. It will cost you your own plans. It will cost you your own vision for what you think your life should look like. These co-authors, Jonathan Dodson and Brad Watson, in a short little book, put it this way. A disciple learns to submit to Jesus in every facet of life. Living the resurrected life then means placing yourself under Christ's rule. He is in charge, and he is good at what he does. Now, conversely, if you cannot, if you will not place yourself under the rule of Christ, then you really have no place to exercise any authority in your own life. You will instead, inevitably, exercise a corrupted, a usurping form of authority. And some of you know this from the ways you have sinned personally. Some of you know this from the ways that you've been sinned against. It will be crippling when that happens. It will be heavy-handed 
when that happens. It will be manipulative when that happens. You will seek to, or others will do this to you, form you in their own image rather than perceive the image of God in other people. That's the kind of authority that we demonstrate when we refuse to yield to Christ and his rule over everything. So ours is a submitted authority. Furthermore, Jesus-shaped authority is servant-hearted authority. What did Jesus use that authority that God gave him to do? He used it for the good of the world. He used it for the service of the world. Wherever This is a, this is a really important, and, and the only way we're going to redeem this notion of authority is if we really grasp this principle deeply and display it in our own lives and relationships. Core biblical principle, wherever authority is prescribed by God, it is always for the thriving and the care and the genuine good of the people underneath it. Always, always, always. During his ministry, Jesus corrects his disciples about this. He says in Matthew 20, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be what? Your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, who is God in the flesh, think about this, washed the mud and the feces from his disciples' feet. And so Jesus, who is eternally existent, used his authority to give up his life as a ransom for many. This is the model for our exercise of authority, not lording it over people, but laying down our lives for the thriving and the care and the good of others. Jesus-shaped authority is also meek authority. And meekness has got to be one of the most misunderstood character traits of Jesus. So let me put it to you this way. If in your own mental thesaurus, you could replace the word meek or meekness with passivity or with abdication, then you really have the wrong definition of meekness altogether. Meekness is not passivity. Meekness is not even restraint, as it's often taught. The best understanding of meekness, the best definition of meekness is this. Power applied mercifully. Power applied compassionately. And so in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus comes in meekness. He lives his life on this earth in meekness. A bruised reed he does not break. A smoldering wick he does not extinguish. And to those who were oppressed and to those who were marginalized, and to those who were suffering, he applied his power mercifully for healing and for restoration and for encouragement. But toward the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, he applied his powerful mercifully. He did do some breaking. He broke some hard hearts. He broke some tables. He turned over those tables in the temple to reclaim that space for the Gentiles to worship God at the temple of God. So sent by Jesus, our authority is a meek authority like his. It is to be applied mercifully and compassionately, which in various scenarios and with various people will mean different things. It will be soft and gentle to the suffering. It will be a jackhammer to the hardness of heart where that is true. But it will always be merciful and compassionate just as Jesus' was and is. The other part of this new authority, the other character of it, 
is highlighted, that's highlighted in John 20 is that it's spirit-filled. It's Jesus-shaped and it's spirit-filled. Verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The disciples here get a, a foretaste, the day of his resurrection. They get a foretaste of what will happen just a few weeks later at Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit empowers them and their ministry And as this spirit of God continued to work in them and through them, and has continued to work in and through the generations of Jesus' disciples to the present day, what we get to rejoice in today is that the Holy Spirit dwells in all of us who repent and put their faith in Jesus. Two things to highlight about spirit-filled authority. The first one is this. In the New Testament, A spirit-filled life is juxtaposed to something. Do you know what that is? Fear. Fear. Shrinking back. There is, juxtaposed in the New Testament, the spirit-filled life and a life characterized by fear. Romans chapter 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then 2 Timothy 1.7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So it is not a coincidence that Jesus tells his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit in this context, in this setting, when they are immersed in fear, when they are hiding out in a locked room for fear of the Jews. And if these disciples are going to be transformed from that into those who are going to live and speak and serve as Jesus' presence to the ends of the earth, who will die doing so, something is going to have to change. And that something is the presence of the Spirit of God in them. Now that's the disciples in the first century. Men and women, by faith, you have this same Spirit. You have this same Spirit. So are you still locked in a room for fear? Because raised to new life in Christ, this is what we're considering as, this, as we're considering this whole series this month, raised to new life in Christ, that's not who you are anymore. That's not who you are anymore. You've been sent not in timidity, but in authority and power of a resurrected Savior. As an ambassador of the present and the coming kingdom of God, you are now one who is filled with the very Spirit of God, the Spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And that leads to the other aspect of spirit-filled authority. What does it mean that our authority is spirit-filled authority? Spirit-filled authority is evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit. That's the other thing it means. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so if stepping into this authority that has been given to us by Jesus... If that lacks love, or if that lacks joy, or if it's not a peacemaking kind of authority, or if it lacks patience or kindness or goodness or really any one of these things, then what we are displaying in that moment is an inconsistent and is a corrupted form of that authority because that's what this authority looks like. What does the authority of Jesus imparted to his people look like in the world? It looks like the fruit of the Spirit. And so as we consider this character of authority, what this authority looks like in our lives, I hope you're hearing this. 
when it comes to this topic of authority, there are really deep ditches on both sides of the road. For those of you who are more tempted to abdicate, to not step into the authority that is yours in Christ, a Jesus-shaped, spirit-filled authority means you don't shrink back. It means you don't hide out and cower in a locked room. On the other hand, for those of you who are tempted to assert your authority in abusive ways, Jesus-shaped, spirit-filled authority means that you remember constantly that any authority you have is derived from God himself. It's exercised in the name of Jesus, and therefore it's submissive, it's servant-hearted, it's meek, and it's characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. So that's the basis of new authority. That's the character of new authority. Lastly, let's consider the need, the need for new authority. Our world has deep need for this new authority to be displayed, to be embodied by the people of God. But here's the thing. No one will ever ask you outside the church to do that. It'll never be framed that way. No one outside of the church, outside of this paradigm, will come to you and say, we need Christians to assert more authority in the world. And some of that's on us. Some of that's, I mean, God help us, some of that is on us in the ways that we've done that poorly as Christians throughout generations and in the present day. No one will ask you, but, and that's because, generally speaking, our society, our culture is an anti-authority, anti-establishment kind of society. That's how our nation was founded. It's no surprise it's kind of continued on to the present day. But where in name we are those who societally say we don't like authority, we reject authority, we rebel against authority, in practice, our culture loves it and craves it and practices all kinds of warped versions of it all the time. Near the end of, of World War II, there was a, a Russian author named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he was sentenced to eight years in a Russian labor camp for writing anti-Soviet propaganda. So he wrote against the Soviets. The Soviets were on the winning side of that war. They sent some of their, uh, some folks who wrote and spoke out against them to labor camps. He was one of them. While he was there, understandably struggling with a deep hatred for those who put him there, he had this really profound realization. And he said this, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Confronted with the pit into which we are about to toss those who have done us harm, we halt stricken and dumb. It is, after all, only because of the way things worked out that they were the executioners and we weren't. Think about what that means. That means the remedy for all the abuses and all the abdications of authority in our day is not just to replace these people with those people, this authority with that authority. It means that the 99%, for all their outcries against the 1%, would be just as abusive and damaging as the 1%. It means that Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and Independents would all be equally abusive in their own unique and specific ways. Replacing them is not the answer. The only remedy is a completely new kind of authority. This past Wednesday, April 4th, was 50 years uh, since Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And to commemorate that occasion, to, to lament these deep racial divides that still exist in our day, in our nation, the Gospel Coalition, a group of churches, pastors, ministries, uh, hosted a two-day conference in Memphis this week. Uh, I've only been able to catch some brief excerpts uh, from that conference, but the, the, those that I've heard so far have just been fantastic. I would, I would recommend it even on the little bit that I've heard so far. 
One excerpt in particular really hit the nail on the head about the need for the presence of this kingdom of priests in our world today. Charlie Edward Dates is a Baptist pastor in Chicago, and he said this, At the cross, God got justice and we got righteousness. So now in the church, we who are righteous ought to be found fighting for justice. And then he goes on to say, how is it that for so long American Christianity has had its finger on parsing the language of righteousness, but its feet far from fighting injustice? And now today, we are witnessing the emergence of a new generation of Americans, get this, that are fascinated with justice, but they haven't met the author of righteousness. Fascinated with justice, but who haven't met the author of righteousness. That is spot on. Spot on. And certainly at least some of what he's speaking to there is the prevalence of what's become known as this phenomenon of social justice warriors. Justice-minded people who assert themselves and attempt to speak authoritatively to all kinds of issues in our world, but who do so almost always without reference to the author of justice, to the author of righteousness. In the hands of those who don't submit to God, social justice should make you really nervous. should make you really nervous. Think about Alexander Solzhenitsyn's quote. It should make you really nervous. Why? Because without a deep sense of our derived authority, social justice warriors see themselves as judge, jury, and executioner without submitting to their own judge themselves, without having to answer to anyone except themselves. And without the servant-heartedness and the meekness and the fruit of the Spirit that characterize this new kind of authority, this will only inevitably lead to other forms of slavery and other forms of abuse. It will lead to the slavery and abuse of silence and safe spaces in place of free speech. It will lead to the slavery and abuse of tolerance and tiptoeing around things rather than actually loving people. It will lead to the slavery and the abuse, and it truly is an abuse, of having to follow majority opinion rather than the objective good of the kingdom of God. But look, if you are one who is concerned or frustrated with those who speak out against injustice, this whole phenomenon of social justice warriors today, if you're concerned or frustrated by that, if you want to lament the self-righteousness, if you want to lament the hypocrisy that so often characterizes those conversations... Don't forget that their voices are filling the void that is meant to be filled by you and me. Social justice warriors are stepping into the void that we, as those who are given genuine derived authority from the resurrected Jesus, are leaving behind. They are asserting a corrupted version of authority, in many cases because there is such an absence and such an abdication by this kingdom of priests to God. So know this, if it were not social justice warriors, it would be the rocks crying out. Pastor John preached on that text from Romans 8 a couple weeks ago and did a fantastic job. In Romans 8, the apostle Paul says, all of creation is groaning. It's agonizing under the weight and fracture of sin and the injustice that exists in our world. Something is going to cry out under the strain of that. Maybe it's the rocks, or maybe it's misguided people who don't know God, or who choose to ignore God in the real definition of of good according to the design of God. And so before we point our finger at misguided people, may we point the finger at ourselves. 
that we are the rightful heirs of the kingdom of God, the rightful voice in the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, are we remaining silent? Are we locked in a room for fear of man rather than fear of God? And the church, capital C, church, the church is effective. Scratch that. The the church is the church. The church is the church because it fears God, not people. And this is all about authority. Who we fear is all about authority. God has inherent authority. He's given authority to his people and sent them out with it. What will we do with that? Because under the rule and reign of Christ, proclaiming his kingdom, where John ends this text, we not only have the authority and power to combat injustice in the world, we have the authority to forgive sins. Verse 23. Let's make sure we understand what that means and doesn't mean. Uh, We cannot, in and of ourselves, forgive people's sins. That is God alone. But as the presence of Jesus in the world, when people look through you and see Jesus, when people look and see Christ in you, and they turn in repentance and faith to Jesus, their sins are forgiven. This is the ultimate human need, to have your sins forgiven, to be reconciled in your relationship with God. And this is the ultimate purpose for which we've been sent with Jesus' resurrection authority into the world, to impart forgiveness, to impart new life that we ourselves have needed, that we ourselves have received through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so I'll close with this. When God the Father first created human life, he took the dust of the earth and he breathed into it. In John chapter 20, when the resurrected Jesus appears in the midst of this fearful group of his disciples, people who have been reduced to pale shadows of who they are meant to be, of who they really are, what does Jesus do? He breathes on them. And that seems weird. Like if you think about being breathed on, it seems weird, and it would be weird, except that every Jewish mind in the room would hearken back to the story of God's original creation of all things and God's original impartation of life to his image bearers. And when God created man and woman in his own image, he said to them, you will be co-creators and co-regents of what I have made. You should fill the earth and you should subdue it. You should exercise dominion and authority as my co-regents over what I've made. So when our risen Savior shows up here and he breathes on his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, he is recreating what sin has fractured and corrupted. He is saying again to his people, exercise the dominion and authority that you've always been meant to exercise, but where you have abdicated, where you have asserted in abusive ways, now in Christ you are made new. And you receive the Holy Spirit with renewed and redeemed authority. You now go out again as co-regents, co-cultivators of what God has made, and subdue the earth, living, speaking, and serving with some of Jesus' own authority. So friends, may you come alive to this authority that is yours to carry in the world. And may God conform you to the image of his son. May God fill you with his spirit that you might not abdicate, that you might not assert abusively, but as those who have died and have brought, been brought to life, that you might exercise this new authority for the life and the good and the thriving of the world. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, you alone are God.
we began our service proclaiming that great truth. Help us to remember it and live it each and every day. Help us to be both our safeguard against asserting authority that is only from you, asserting authority in an abusive way when we recognize it's only from you. Help us in the same way to know that we have it because, Jesus, you've imparted it to your people. And help us to step into that void, into this world that so desperately needs us to be this kingdom of priests. Would you make us that? Would you even this morning form us a little bit more into that? Would we find as we come to this table now new grace for a new day to to exercise this new authority? And we pray that your spirit, as we've been filled and received the spirit in our own repentance and faith, that we would receive the spirit again and again and again, empowering us to live this out, to display, to demonstrate this new authority in the world. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.